I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. Before getting to today's topic, I would like to thank you for your continued interest and support. The audience for this podcast continues to grow, but slowly. You can help me reach more people by sharing this podcast with others you think would be interested and by referencing it on your social media. My take on music recording is carried by all the major podcast providers, so it's easy to find. You can also access all episodes back to the very first one at Buzzsprout, my podcast hosting site. The link is in the description. Some listeners send me email with their comments and suggestions for future episodes. I answer every one of them. You can reach me at dwfern at dwfern.com. Thanks. Speaking of the very first episode called Your Hearing is Amazing, it's a broad overview of how your hearing works in the context of the recording environment. It explains several of the anomalies in our hearing that we should all be aware of when recording and mixing music. There is a direct link to that episode in the description. I would suggest going back and listening to Your Hearing is Amazing if you have not done so. Today's episode addresses the specific topic of how you can improve your hearing, or, more precisely, your listening. How did you get interested in recording? Playing an instrument? Singing? Writing songs? Experimenting with a recorder on your phone or other device? Or, if you're old enough, having fun with a tape recorder? What was it that fascinated you about the ability to capture a sound and then play it back? I can tell you about my experience, which is in some ways unusual, but in other ways fairly typical. My father played French horn in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and for some reason I'll never quite understand, but I am eternally grateful for he used to take me with him to the orchestra rehearsals. I also went to concerts, but the rehearsals had the greatest influence on me. I knew many of the orchestra members. They were our family friends. Characters, most of them, bigger than life. But I saw them as a different person when they were on stage. There, they were focused, intense, and really good at what they did. Before the rehearsal or concert, the musicians would wander around backstage playing their instrument, warming up. They're all walking while they play, except maybe the double bass players. I'm standing somewhere in the wings watching this procession of instruments as they walk past me, or as they make a circuit around the dressing rooms and the green room. Some of them stop to chat with me for a minute. It was interesting hearing all these very different instruments coming and going. Some were far away, maybe 60 feet from me. Others were conversation distance from me. I learned that when the instruments were a couple of feet away from me, they sounded very different from how they sounded far away. Closer, they were not only louder, but they seemed almost annoying, sometimes even shrill and very loud. You could hear the mechanism of wind instruments clicking and clacking. Violins that close made my ears hurt. They were so loud and piercing. 
There was a lot of nasty sound in a violin when heard that close. Yet, from a distance, the sound was pleasant, like a beautiful singing voice. For many instruments, I started thinking of them as the musicians talking. The sounds were human and expressive, sometimes a murmur, other times a shout. The backstage area was, of course, also coupled to the vast Academy of Music concert hall. That added a reverberation from off to my left that paralleled the direct sound, but it was delayed and diffuse. The sound continued for several seconds after the plane stopped. Fascinating stuff to the ears of a seven-year-old. Once the orchestra was assembled on stage, the sound changed again. Now the orchestra was one big machine, a music-making machine with an enormous dynamic range, from whisper-quiet to thunderous. There were instruments that were so low in pitch you felt the sound as much as you heard it. Others were so high in pitch that they could cut through the combined sound of a hundred other instruments playing at the same time. How could they do that? I would wander around the empty concert hall, listening to how the instruments changed their sound, depending on where I was. It was a rehearsal, so there was a lot of stopping and starting, and dialogue between the conductor and the players. I was amazed from a seat in the hall. The music was loud, but the voices were practically inaudible. Lots to think about. At home, I forgot about music. We didn't have anything to reproduce music in our house, except for a TV set, which I never thought of as reproducing music. The sound coming from a TV speaker was not really music. Music was something that existed in the Academy of Music, or maybe in our basement where my father rehearsed with a woodwind quintet made up of orchestra members. I was very young, maybe three years old, when my father started taking me to their rehearsals at home. Even at that age, I was awed by the sound of the instruments in the ensemble. Flute, oboe, bassoon, French horn, and sometimes another wind instrument, depending on the piece. I was sitting at the feet of some of the best classical players in the world. The bassoon, in particular, captivated me. The oboe, too, was remarkable in the hands of a virtuoso who made the most beautiful sounds I had ever heard. I did not play an instrument as a kid, although I did pick out melodies on the piano in my father's basement music studio. I was not encouraged to play an instrument, but my father did want me to experience great music by a world-class orchestra. Later, when I was recording music, I learned to play guitar, although not very well. One of my studio clients gave me guitar lessons, but I could see that without a great deal of time commitment, I would never be able to play to my own standards. After all, I was working with some really great musicians in my studio, and it was embarrassing for me to be so incompetent compared to those guys. But I did realize that getting a working knowledge of instruments I was recording helped me to capture them better. I was fortunate that many of the fine studio musicians I worked with regularly 
were happy to lend me one of their practice instruments for a few weeks. I was never even beginner competent on any of them, but the insights I gained from trying to make a violin or a bassoon sound decent taught me a lot. The only instrument that I was remotely competent on was electric bass, and I actually played on a few sessions, mostly song demos that would not be heard by the public. That all ended when I was 30 and was hit head-on by a drunk driver one night heading home from my studio. That accident left me with severe limitations in range of movement in my left arm. I discovered there was no longer any instrument I could play more than a few seconds before the pain made me stop. It has never gotten any better. However, when sampled instruments came out, I saw that as an opportunity, and over the intervening years, I have added parts on records or recorded an idea I wanted a real player to use on something I was producing. Other factors influenced me as a kid. We lived on a street that ended at the edge of the woods. There was no traffic. There were very few kids in my neighborhood, which was fine with me. I lived in those woods in the isolation from almost all man-made sound. I was surrounded by natural sounds of birds, animals, water moving, the wind in the trees, but most of all it was quiet unlike the noisy, confusing, and annoying atmosphere of school. I liked the quiet. I also liked science, any science. I read everything I could on nature and physics. I liked to discover connections between different scientific disciplines that showed how everything followed the same rules. Electricity, in particular, fascinated me. I figured out how to make a flashlight bulb light using a battery and a couple of paper clips. I built ever more complex electrical devices, including a crystal radio receiver that could pick up only one Philadelphia radio station. That was fun, but I did not find the radio programming particularly interesting. The music in my cheap headphones sounded distant, tinny, and very small not at all like the real music I experienced. When I was 12, I studied to get my amateur radio license, which required proving proficiency at electronics theory and, significantly, a mastery of Morse code. The code taught me a lot about listening. As a beginner, the challenge was translating dots and dashes into words. After a while, The words formed themselves in my head without any thought. The code also required me to use my hearing to find radio signals that were weak and often buried in noise and interference from other code signals. A good receiver could isolate the signal you wanted to copy and exclude the bulk of the other noise. But I was 12 years old and couldn't afford a fancy receiver so I made do with my very old, simple equipment or stuff I built myself. The lousy receiver meant that I had to focus my hearing on one Morse code signal I needed to listen to and mentally exclude everything else as much as possible. That experience helped me explore how my hearing actually worked. 
I discovered that often it was easier to separate various sounds at a very low listening level than it was when the volume was higher. That puzzled me back then, but it is a technique that has served me well throughout my career in audio. The receiver I used allowed me to listen to the code at any pitch, from very low up to maybe 5 kilohertz. Very low frequency tones tended to get lost in the inherent hum that was a characteristic of my crude receiver. Very high pitches seemed a lot louder, but were actually more difficult to separate from other code signals in the same range. What worked best for me was to set the desired code signal audio frequency pretty low, maybe 300 or 400 hertz. That's the fundamental range of many musical instruments. When you hear Morse code depicted in a movie, the pitch is always much higher than what I preferred or what most real code operators would select. Eventually, it occurred to me that when you had multiple signals at various close space pitches, the lower the audio frequency, the greater the percentage difference was between them and your hearing could separate the different signals much more easily if they were, say, 50% different in frequency than if they were 5% different. Sending code 2 was fascinating to me. I always used a telegraph key that allowed me to turn the mechanized sound of Morse code into something a bit more interesting. But a new technology was becoming available they use a special kind of telegraph key connected to an electronic device that generated perfectly uniform code dots and dashes with imposed strict spacing. I built one of those keyers, which I used for a while, but soon became disenchanted with the mechanical sound of my sending, which was indistinguishable from anyone else sending with a similar device. I think of it now as similar to playing music to a click track. That works for a lot of music, but the music I was exposed to as a kid often had changing tempos in order to convey the emotion the composer intended. For sending Morse code, I preferred a type of telegraph key invented in the days of landline telegraphy. It had a vibrating reed that made a fairly uniform string of dots when a horizontal lever was pushed in one direction. The speed of the dots was set by the position of a weight on the vibrating reed. Moving the key in the opposite direction allowed you to make the dashes, but manually. It was called a semi-automatic key. It allowed operators to send with much less effort and at higher speeds than the usual device we think of as a telegraph key. The semi-automatic key allowed me to add some personality to my sending. I wasn't alone in doing this. Most of the old-time operators I encountered used the same type of key, and their sending was as individual and unique as they were. To me, their sending was instantly recognizable, as distinct as a voice. I don't have much time to use my much more sophisticated amateur radio equipment these days, but when I do, it is always using Morse code and always using a semi-automatic telegraph key. 
Interestingly, some of the people who I've talked to using the code over many years often refer to my sending as music. And I suppose there's some truth to that. It is common knowledge among code operators that musicians send the best code. Johnny Cash was a superb code operator in the Air Force before he devoted his efforts to his musical career. I could name a bunch of others in our business, but you get the idea. Well, that was the start of my path to developing my hearing. Your path was undoubtedly different, but I suspect we all share a lot of the same fascination with sounds, how they are made, and how they fit together to make music. Let's say you're just starting out and want to improve your hearing. How can you do that? Will it help you in your recording career? Hearing is important, obviously, but one thing I learned over the years is that there are two distinctly different ways of listening. One is analytical, delving into the details of the sound, studying the nuances. That approach helps you avoid problems that could later create a lot of extra work to fix. We all have to listen for distortion, weird frequency response, unwanted noise, out-of-tune notes, and timing problems. That's part of our job, and we can't ignore that. The other way of hearing is with your heart. How does that sound or that music make you feel? That's how your listener is going to react to the music. They are not interested in the details. They want music to evoke some sort of emotion. You have to be able to listen that way, too. Both are important. Even if the listener is never consciously aware of a bad note, a timing error between instruments, or instruments that just don't blend well, I believe it still affects them unconsciously, and it can detract from their enjoyment of the music. They are unlikely to know why, but they will be aware that something just doesn't seem right. Chances are, they will lose interest in the song rather quickly, they can be frustrated by that because they may actually really like the song, but it doesn't feel right. You have to be able to shift from one listening mode to the other, back and forth, throughout the project. Some of us are better at one than the other, but I think we can learn how to improve both. A few years ago, I was working on a project that needed just the right reverb. I thought it would have been a distraction to have a reverb that wasn't right for the music. Too long, too short, too bright, not bright enough, too dense, too sparse. I went through dozens of different reverb programs on my two hardware digital reverb units, and I tried a few plug-in reverbs, too. I finally found just what I wanted, after narrowing it down to a combination of two hardware reverb programs and then tweaking the parameters. It was a lot of work, and I could question whether it was really all that important, but eventually I did get it to sound the way I wanted. Now here's the interesting part of this story. I finished work for the day and went home. Suddenly, I was hyper-aware of the reverb in my house. Previously, the sound of various rooms, their acoustical properties, was clear to me. But now, for the first time, I was overwhelmed with the sound of the reverb, even in small, dead rooms. It was kind of annoying, to tell the truth, because none of the spaces sounded any good to me. 
That experience showed me that by focusing on listening to one particular aspect of a sound, I could enhance my ability to hear that characteristic in much greater detail than I would have otherwise. I had improved my hearing by intense concentration. I have to say that my hypersensitivity to reverb faded pretty quickly. By the next morning, my extreme sensitivity to the sound of a room returned to my normal baseline. But now, I could shift into that super-sensitive mode easily when I wanted to. I had a new tool to utilize when the need arose. Now, I can easily evoke my reverb tool anytime I need to. This was indeed helpful when I was trying to tame the acoustics of my current studio. By going into reverb mode, I can hear the problems clearly, and that guided me to solutions. That's a studio example, but you don't have to be in a studio to practice some hearing enhancement skills. In your everyday life, you are constantly moving from one acoustic environment to another. All you need to do is pay attention to the sound of the space you are in. You don't even need the technical vocabulary to describe a space, although that can help. List all the characteristics you can of the sound of the space. Dead, live, bright, dull, pleasant, unpleasant. Is there one distinct echo and nothing more? Or how long is the reverb decay time? Is the decay uniform across all frequencies, or do some frequencies die out sooner than others? Could you use that sound in a recording? When would it be useful? I live in the woods. Yes, my early attraction to that environment has never left me, and one of my favorite sounds is the delightful reverberation and diffusion of a forest. It is nearly a perfect reverb. It's natural. Maybe our evolution in such an environment has made us comfortable there for many reasons, including how it sounds. My woods include a valley, and the valley has a long reverberation time of many seconds, skewed toward the base end of the audio range. The trees offer many distinct echoes, but very few of them occur at the same time. And then there are echoes of echoes, as the sound bounces off one tree and then another, perhaps in the opposite direction. You don't need a forest to hear this. Even a city park can provide insight. Speaking of cities, they are full of interesting acoustic reflections and reverberation. Cities are also noisy, which means you will rarely hear the full decay time of the reverb there. But listen to the sound of traffic, sirens, footsteps, voices as you walk around. It can be very interesting and useful training for your listening skills. In addition to the reverberation characteristics, listen to the nature of the sounds around you. Practice localizing the sound. Experience how hard reflections can completely alter your notion of where a sound is coming from. Notice how any time you hear a sound reflected from above you, off a ceiling for example, how that changes your perception of where the sound is coming from. In general, we do not like the sound of echoes from above us. 
Evolving in an outdoor environment may have caused this. It could be dangerous to not know where the source of sound was. One thing I became aware of many years ago was the low-frequency sounds in our environment. I'm not talking about the obvious low frequencies, like traffic rumble or a subway train. They are interesting in themselves, but I am talking about sounds so low in frequency and intensity that you probably were never aware of them before. In a quiet environment, inside or out, listen for the sounds at the very bottom of your hearing range, in the 20 hertz range. Don't hear anything down there? Keep listening. The sound is there, even in a place far from most man-made sound. Where is it coming from? You may never know, since our ability to localize sounds is very poor at low frequencies. Once you train your ears to hear it, you will find these low-level, low-frequency sounds easy to detect without any effort. No discussion of hearing would be complete without some acknowledgement that most of us have suffered from hearing loss. You don't have to be old. I suspect anyone over 15 has some measurable loss, both in sensitivity and in frequency range. That doesn't have to be the case. People who live in very quiet environments tend to maintain excellent hearing through old age. But we live in a very noisy world, most of us. It's mostly man-made noise, and it will eventually destroy your amazing hearing. First to go are the high frequencies. Most people over age 30 can no longer hear anything in the uppermost octave of our hearing range, from 10 kilohertz to 20 kilohertz. But even teenagers who listen to music too loud, go to concerts, or play in a band have significant hearing loss. It will only get worse for them. Most people lose those high frequencies first, and your hearing sensitivity drops too. Most people have hearing that is 20 dB or more down from when they were young. How can you avoid this? Well, it's too late for most of you, I'm afraid. Fortunately, it doesn't necessarily mean you can no longer do your job. Our brains are very good at compensating. The simplest preventive answer is to avoid all loud noises. How loud? Well, OSHA says that workers cannot be exposed to sound levels above 85 dB SPL in an eight-hour shift. Will keeping your exposure below 85 dB preserve your hearing? Unfortunately, no. That OSHA standard is only to prevent hearing loss that would make you unable to function in the world. It aims to keep your hearing from deteriorating in the voice range from 300 hertz to about 3 kilohertz. And it can be down more than 25 dB and still be considered normal. Your hearing can be totally insensitive to sounds above 3 kilohertz and still be considered okay. Certainly, that is not good enough for us to do our jobs with proficiency. How loud is 85 dB SPL? It would be considered a moderate monitor level by some engineers and too low for many. I normally monitor at about 65 to 75 dB, but I occasionally crank it up higher 
to make sure I am not missing something that is going to cause problems later, such as a noise that can't be heard at a 75 dB monitor level. 85 dB is lower than the level in your car when you are driving over 35 miles per hour with the windows open. Most appliances and tools are louder than 85 dB. Ever fire a gun? Without hearing protection, every shot eroded your hearing. Like to go to concerts? Very few are lower than 85 dB SPL. Even a symphony orchestra can produce peaks over 100 dB with some compositions. 120 dB SPL is common in many concert venues, even with music that is intrinsically moderate in level. Play an instrument? Some, like a violin, are held close to your ear and produce damaging levels of sound with every note. Others are more obvious, like drums or electric guitar. I'm not sure if silence helps your hearing from deteriorating, but it is certainly good for your general well-being. Many find silence uncomfortable, but I find it relaxing. I consider myself lucky because, even as a kid, I hated loud noises. A vacuum cleaner would drive me out of the house. For much of my life, I avoided power tools because the noise was too awful. In the days before air conditioning was standard in cars, I would drive around with the windows closed even on the hottest days because I could not tolerate the noise. Eventually, I learned how to use hearing protection to make my life more pleasant. Now, with almost any tool, even a hammer, I use hearing protection. I use my hearing protectors when I vacuum the floor. I never have the windows open in my car, except on those extremely pleasant days in spring or fall, but only when driving slowly on a road with minimal traffic. Those types of sounds may not bother you, and in many ways I envy you, but my supersensitivity to noise has helped me retain decent hearing into my 70s. I can't claim great insight for this, I was just trying to make my life more tolerable. But even if those sounds do not bother you, you would still be wise to consider the effect of noise on your hearing and on your career. What about improving our ability to listen with our heart instead of our brain? Well, everything I talked about to help enhance your hearing has to go out the window when you need to evaluate how your recording is going to be perceived by the general public. What I have found most useful is to eliminate all the details in the recording so you are left only with its essence. Everyone will have to develop their own way to achieve this, but what works best for me is to play the recording at typical audio consumer level. That is, for many people, practically background music level. It might be 55 dB SPL or lower. If you are listening to your control room monitors or other decent quality speakers, there is still too much detail and too wide a frequency range there to be useful in this scenario. You could filter the sound or switch to crummy speakers, but what I do is exit the control room, leaving the door open. Walk away until you can just barely hear the music. 
I avoid being in a spot that is line of sight to the speakers, so all I hear is indirect sound that has been reflected around the corners before reaching my ears. Now, what does that music do to you? Can you still understand the words? That is important in most music. Then, stop listening consciously and try to pretend you never heard that song before. What feeling does that music evoke in you? I find that approach is a very good way to evaluate mixes, but it is also helpful to experience how the music feels and how it will be perceived by the listener. Another test is to see how you feel after listening to the same piece over and over, perhaps for hours. Is it still exciting, or are you tired of it? For me, the ultimate test is whether I want to go home and listen to it again later the same day. Of course, your enthusiasm for the song, the artist, the musicianship, and your own success at getting the sounds you want will influence whether you want to hear it again after a long day in the studio. But if you do, perhaps that is a good sign that the public might have a similar enthusiastic reaction to the song, at least by those out there who are inclined to like that kind of music. The next challenge is to create that same mental state when you are in a session. The music will be much louder, it will sound great, and it is easy to get caught up in the details. Eliminate those. You just want to know how the music makes you feel. Some people do this naturally, and it requires no effort on their part. Others need to practice. I think it is a skill worth developing. I have covered some of the things that I think could be helpful to you in refining your hearing and protecting it. There are many more examples I could give, but I think this gives you something to think about. There is another aspect to this, which is developing your hearing and listening to help you make sure that what you are recording is not only as free of defects as possible, but also making sure the engineering decisions you make are always in support of the music. But that's a topic for another time. So here is a summary of the main points of this episode. One, everyone has a different path that led them to a career in recording, but there are common factors that all of us experienced. Two, your early exposure to music and to sound probably influenced your career choice. Three, I see two very different listening modes, which you could distill down to listening with your head and listening with your heart. Both are important. Four, you can enhance your listening capabilities through conscious effort. Five, listen to whatever environment you are in. The knowledge you gain could be helpful in the studio. Six, there are sounds arriving at our ears below our level of consciousness. You can improve your perception of those sounds if you want to. Seven, your amazing hearing is constantly eroding from exposure to sound that is too loud. Much of our life is spent in hearing damaging environments. There are steps you can take to preserve your hearing. Eight, eliminating details during playback can help you hear the song as the public will hear it. 
Enhancing your listening can be very rewarding and useful in your work. That increased awareness might be annoying to some people, but I urge you to try some listening exercises and see what happens. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.